I want some of our brothers who aren't here to be able to hear this because I believe I've got them on my mind as well. So this morning is May 2nd. It's Sunday morning. Uh, we almost never talk about this, but I would like to draw people's attention to the fact that there's a little box in the back of this room if the Lord should move you to contribute to this ministry. The 1st and 15th are always interesting times for us where we get a chance to display our faith. Um, our text today is going to come from 2 Kings, but before you get there, I want you to go to Deuteronomy 20. Okay, So turn to Deuteronomy 20. I showed you the film about India's traffic. I, I couldn't tell you um, how overwhelming it is. When you are there, you hear a cacophony of horns. They're, they're all around you. And it sounds a little bit like echolocation. I mean, the, the horn announces that somebody is approaching. Another horn announces, I heard you approaching. And there's 1.2 billion people. And one of the things that can be disconcerting as a foreigner is... We're used to, oh, no, brother, after you. No, brother, after you. And you can be polite for 30 seconds at a doorway until somebody has the courage or carnality to go first, whatever it may be. Uh, in India, that will not work while you're driving. So uh, the most meek, humble Christian drives like a, uh, a gladiator. And uh, so when you're in the back seat, you know, it, it may not appear very meek, very godly. In fact, there's some chatter about that going on in our back seat. And the, the driver turned and he said, please, brothers, understand, with 1.2 billion people, if I let everyone go before me, I will never get where God called me to go. And uh, I understood, you know. And, and as aggressive as they are, my point is, there are times in life you cannot yield to something. In general, we teach in Christianity, put everyone's needs before your own. Yield to one another out of a love for God. But there are some things you are not allowed to yield. For the instance, uh, for, for instance, peace at all costs is no peace at all. <laughs> if, if peace with you requires me to deny the very thing that God put in me, that is not peace. Peace in the Bible is shalom. It's when everything is when it's in its right order with God. Peace is not an absence of hostility. I want to assure you, you can be at perfect peace and be at war. You are supposed to be at peace, but at war with the enemies of God. This, this is uh, it's biblical through and through. He says, I will grant you peace and you will defeat all of your enemies. Well, which is it? Am I going to be a conqueror? Am I going to be in peace? It is both when you're conquering the areas that you're supposed to be conquering, the Bible calls you at peace. I wanted to submit to you today an idea, and I'm just going to ask you to not uh, sit and soak, not let this be sage on a stage where you just endure your hour and then we go eat. I want you to actually consider uh, a little inward reflection. We have been taught through our bumper stickers, I ain't scared. We say things like, no fear. The truth is, I don't know if there's ever been a generation that was more dominated by fear and yet claims that it plays no role in our lives. How many times have you crossed your arm and said, I don't care what anybody thinks? Really? Why did you get up and spend an hour putting makeup on today? Why do we fix our hair the way we do? Does it even play a role in the car that you drive? The house that you live in? We say that it doesn't. But would you care if the emblems were ripped off of everything that you owned? We say that we wouldn't, then why do you buy the ones you do? See, the world is smarter about these things than we are. They know that if they attach prestige to an item, you'll buy it because you care what other people think. Why is it that when you buy a ring new, it's worth $4,000? The day after you buy it, if you want to go pawn it, it's worth about a grand. There is a perceived value. That ring, that rock, I mean... My Lord, it is a diamond. <laughs> they're, they're not supposed to change. They've been around millions of years. What caused it to depreciate? Nothing but perception. So I want to tell you that fear and intimidation play a much bigger role in the lives of American Christians than we act like they did. And what is worse is it is not so obvious. It's not a full frontal assault that you recognize it quickly. It's more of an erosive force that is on you all of the time around you telling you what you need to be accomplished. You know, I, I want to share with you from my own history. I was told that the level of my aptitude would probably be to get a mower 
and cut people's grass or clean people's houses. That's about all they saw me capable of. There are some things in life you're not allowed to yield to. It may appear like arrogance to some. It may just be godly confidence or trust, but there are some things that you are not allowed to yield to. At other times, I can remember trying to start a church and being told there are no sheep, there is no need for a shepherd. Running into pastor after pastor in this area who was now in some other line of work that said, you cannot start a church there. Matthew's Relifter told me the first moment that I met him, there's no use in starting a church in Sugarland, And yet you're here. So how does that work? And you're not here because of a marketing program. I didn't even know we were in the phone book till it rang. The phone rang. <laughs> Somebody soliciting a donation. <laughs> we plugged it in the wall and it rang. It was the most amazing thing. Our very first time we plugged the phone in the wall, it was ringing. And somebody wanted a donation. There's a monthly struggle that occurs here regularly that we're not allowed to yield to. I tell you all of this because Deuteronomy 20 describes something. So let's read. When you go to war against your enemies, he doesn't say if you go to war. He doesn't say on occasion if it should happen. He states it as a matter of fact. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, American Christianity would have you believe that you're so blessed there will never be a time that it is greater than yours. I want to submit to you that if you're walking in the kingdom, he will strip you of silver and gold. He will strip you of friends and family. He will strip you of what would support you other than him so that you are always outnumbered. There is no glory for God when your resources deliver you. There is no glory for him. So sometimes he'll require you to put MasterCard away. Sometimes he will require you to be separated from those that would encourage you. Sometimes he makes sure that the giant is very tall and you are very small. Do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. More than 10 times in the book of Deuteronomy alone, he says, do not be afraid. Do not be. Do you think that we have a propensity to be afraid if the Bible tells us in one book to not be afraid 10 times? I want to suggest that we're often riddled with fear. You start debating decisions. How much time do you spend stressed and worried about your finances? How much time do you spend defending your reputation or any threat against it? How much time do you spend contemplating failures that occurred in the past or potential failures that may occur in the future? If I do this, but what will happen? I mean, let's just be honest. A wheelchair gets rolled in here right now. It's the most debilitating disease you've ever seen. And you have the thought, maybe God will heal them. What is your next thought? What if he doesn't? What if I stand up and I grab that person out of the chair and they do not get healed? Isn't that a normal thought? This is why the word says over and over and over and over, do not be afraid. It doesn't mean don't acknowledge that you're outnumbered. He says, point blank, when you go to war with someone and you see their chariots and horses and an army that's greater than yours, it is okay to acknowledge that you're outmanned. It is okay to acknowledge that you do not have what it takes. It is not okay to act like God is not with you. Listen to what he goes on to say. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, Hear, O Israel, Shema Ya Israel. Today you are going into battle against your enemy. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. We need to quit acting like this thing depends upon our resources, like it depends upon our decisions and our abilities. So, well, Eric, I, I know I have to make right decisions. You do, but where do you think your decisions come from? Do you think you simply decided to choose the house you did? Acts 17 says he puts boundaries for all mankind. He determines the times and places they would live and hear this work. Every time I couldn't find a job, God was steering my path. I didn't always like it. That's why he had to steer me. 
He will put a bit in your mouth. Not very many times in somebody's life do they say, you know, this year, I'm going to see if I can make 45, 50% of what I made last year. Has that been anybody's goal? But if God wants to do something to gain glory for himself, like sustain you through that famine while others get saved. The most profitable year in the kingdom that I can think of, I met Mandy Wakefield, Yvette Reynolds, all kind of people. I made about 50% of what I did the year before that. I would never have chosen that. Now, I would never lose that year for money. Never. Our God is steering our events. He will steer you into valleys that look too deep for you to go through. Mountains that look too high for you to climb and giants that look way too big to knock down. This is why trust is required. And you never know whether you trust something until it is put to a test. It is so easy to say, oh, no, no, I trust the Lord will provide. Really? Well, let's give you a little shortage and see. I believe that the Lord will heal. When you're sick, do you feel that way? Or do you just go take the medicine and go to sleep? Go hide in your house and never come out? See, it is so easy to say that we believe. You know whether or not you believe something based on how you act in accordance with what the Word says about it. If you say you believe God will provide, but you bite your nails off of your hands, what is that telling you? Saints, we need to be honest. We need to look in the mirror and say, okay, Lord, the truth is I've got these issues I'm having trouble trusting you with. Help me in this situation. This is where he will come through in a mighty, mighty way. I want to talk to you today about, I hope to get to a couple kinds of attacks. But I can tell you, I can feel the way this is going. I will never finish this message, so we're going to talk about a singular attack today. We're going to talk about somebody who is inspiring fear in your life. Somebody who is an intimidator in your life. He's there. He's overwhelming. He seems like this is a mountain you will never climb, a giant you will never knock down. He wants to be big so that you can be small. We're talking about any situation that fits that today. We're going to start with a man named Sennacherib. You can turn to 2 Kings. I think we're going to be about the 18th chapter. Come on, brother. That net Bible's fast. There. Got a special there. transmission in it. Shift kit. Some, some folks don't even know what that is. Huh? Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about Sennacherib first. This guy was reigning. Actually, he was born in about 704 B.C. and uh, died in 681 B.C. I want you to think about that because he's from a place called Nineveh. Just a hundred years before, Nineveh had experienced revival under the ministry of a guy who got swallowed by a fish. Who is it? Jonah. Jonah didn't want to go. He said, they're bad folks, Lord. I'd rather go anywhere else. I'm going to run as far as I can from you. But God's will was done in Jonah's life the hard way. All of that blessing for Nineveh resulted in wealth. It resulted in military power. It resulted in all kind of things that the people did not use for God's glory. <clears throat> I don't know whether you see any present-day applications for that, but we live in an empire that has done many great things, but some of our blessings are not being used for God's glory. Listen to what they became known for. First off, Sennacherib means sin multiplied, right? Sennacherib was a multiplier of sin. There are also other etymologies for his name that have to do with a moon god, but that is another message. I'm not going to talk about Allah today. If Sennacherib means sin multiplied, it might draw back to your remembrance 1 John 3, 5. It says, but that you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. In him there is no sin. So today as we talk about Sennacherib, he is directly opposed to the one who takes away sin. Jesus takes away sin, Sennacherib multiplies sin. You need to begin to equate fear and intimidation in your life with the multiplication of sin. Because it never simply stops you one time. It develops a pattern in your life that begins to control things in your life. I heard recently about a pastor who said he would never, never yield to anything so stupid as fear and intimidation, and he began to talk about it. As he grew older in life, he started to get scared to fly. 
so he drove everywhere. Then he was scared to get on the interstate, so he only took the back roads. Before long, the man's ministry circle got smaller and smaller and smaller. I would say that that's a very practical application of yielding to fear and intimidation in a very real and tangible way. We call them phobias because they sound so much nicer than sin. If God calls you to go somewhere and you will not go, it's sin. If he calls you to say something and you will not say it, it's sin. If he calls you to do something and you will not do it, it is sin. It doesn't matter that your knees shake while you do it, do it. It doesn't matter that it's difficult and your mouth goes dry. Our job is to be obedient to the king. Sinasherib came from Nineveh. Nineveh had a 50-foot wall around the city. 50-foot. It was wide enough for a chariot to circle the city without, you know, having to get off the wall. That's an amazing thing. In the ancient world, the reason I'm describing this is I want you to hear that Sinasherib is a formidable force. It's, it's not as if this is a country hick come to town and the situation we're going to read about is a small one. It is the most advanced army on the planet of its day. He's got a wall that's 50 foot high around his, his whole city. His library holds 22,000 clay tablets. 22,000, that's quite the library for the ancient world. His palace had 71 rooms in it with sculptures and marble floors in all 70 rooms. He had aqueducts before the Romans were ever around. Aqueducts, some of the first aqueducts in the world. He's technologically advanced. Maybe what's best known about Sennacherib is that they were exceedingly violent. There's a pile of skulls nearly 100 feet high at the city gates of Nineveh during this time. For no other reason than to let people know, we'll kill you. If you bother us, we will kill you. If you don't bother us, but you have something we want, we may still kill you. Prior to his conquest of Judah, which we're about to read about, he defeated Babylon. Babylon was the first great world power, and they haven't risen to power yet. But is there a fledgling superpower? He knocks them out. He sets them back more than 100 years. You know, he impaled their nobles all the way around the city of Babylon so that everybody coming from every direction would see, this is what I do to people who oppose me. Does that sound like fear and intimidation? There was a group called the Kassites and the Medes. The Medes were the second major world power. They haven't risen to world power yet. He defeated them and forced them to pay tribute and then sent out letters to the whole world telling them, they pay me just to not beat them up. Right? Does that sound like a bully to you? He wanted everybody. It wasn't enough that he defeated them. It wasn't enough that they paid him tribute. He wanted the world to know that they were paying him not to beat on them anymore. He wanted everybody to know how humiliated they were. All of the small kingdoms that surrounded Israel, he impaled his victims on his way to Israel, but he took each kingdom's king and put him in chains so that when he gets to Jerusalem, standing next to his field commanders are imprisoned kings in chains. I would say that's a pretty powerful visual explanation of what he's saying he's going to do to you. Second Kings, let's start in 18 verse 19. Uh, before we read this 19th verse, I need to tell you a little bit about Hezekiah, who's king at this time. Hezekiah is an amazing figure in the Bible. He begins to break down high places. He does awesome, awesome things for the Lord. And what he's best known for among theological circles is he reinstitutes the Passover. He reinstitutes the Passover, and there's such revival in Israel that even the priests, again, devote themselves to the Lord. Is it any surprise, then, that comes a big test? How many of you have set out to do something for Jesus? It's a new stand. It's a new walk. It's a new time in your life. And it seems like all the power of hell was unleashed upon you that moment. When you become dangerous to the enemy, he takes notice of it. You're newly married. All of the powers in the heavens have just watched a union. It looks a lot like Jesus becoming one with his church. This is a new entity to be feared, to be cautioned in dealing with. Why do you think so many marriages have a tumultuous first year, right? You've just become a Christian. You've just gotten spirit-filled. 
You never had problems in these areas before, and now all of the sudden you feel like you're under attack from every side. Of course, you have become dangerous to the enemy. You're in a war whether or not you choose to acknowledge it. It's best when you begin to see the warfare in every area because then you can clearly draw the lines. Then you know where to take your stand and you're not confused wondering what the Lord is doing. Not every working in your life is the Lord. He's big enough to use every working in your life, but not everything that comes into your life is from Him. Your latest vomit sickness that came probably didn't come from the Lord. Doesn't mean He can't use it to shape you in your life, but it probably didn't come from Him. Y'all in 2 Kings 18? Yes. Look at the 19th verse. The field commander said to them, this is Sennacherib's field commander outside the walls of Jerusalem, and he's going to begin to heckle Hezekiah. Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. How many times have you faced a problem, whatever it is, your loved one is not healed yet. You're short and you're staring at your tithe and you're staring at what you need to pay. And you're in that valley of decision. How many times have you been in places like this and the devil begins to whisper into your ear? What are you basing your confidence on? What a great question to start with, though. That's why we started in Deuteronomy 20. What should we base our confidence on? The size of the armies? What should we base our confidence on? Our resources? Why was it so wrong for David to take a census of his army? It teaches us to put confidence in things that really are not worthy of your confidence. The commander starts in a right place because the devil always wants to call into question your confidence or trust in the Lord. So it begins to deal with him. Look at the, um, how about the 25th verse? Furthermore, I have come to attack you and destroy this place. I'm sorry. Furthermore, have I come to attack you and destroy this place without word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Isn't this the second place you always find yourself? Do I have reason to be confident? I mean, yesterday there was that commercial and I should have changed the channel and I didn't change the channel. Um, you know, I was at that stoplight and... And Nova needed money, and I was going to give it to him, but I thought, you know, he's probably going to go buy a beer with it. So I just kept going. Mm -hmm. You start wondering whether or not you have a reason to be confident. And then the second thing is, what if the Lord has brought this disaster in my direction? Come on now, am I the only one that has spent time in that? No. For 17 years, the Lord sustained us constantly. He's sustained this ministry since April of 2002. <laughs> But I can be convinced on any given day that this is the day it's all going to come apart. <laughs> and it's usually something that I have done, right? I shouldn't have spoken ugly to Jennifer. Now God's going to punish me and it's all going to crush. As if it all depended on me anyway. Am I the only one's ever been in these valleys? I think I know by the spirit a few of you are fighting with them right now. Let's pick up and read in 26. Now, let's pick up and read in 27. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the men sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to... It's hard for me to read that. Are y'all reading that next line? Yeah. Everybody read it? Yeah. That's a pretty horrible thing, isn't it? That is a horrible thing. There is a technologically advanced, superior enemy outside the walls of Jerusalem He's saying you have no reason for your confidence. He's saying that God sent him there to punish you. And now he's saying that the end of this matter is going to be that you will have to literally dwell in disgusting things. There is no worse insult that could be paid. As you're staring at this, how real might it appear to you? You're looking at kings that have fallen already in chains. You can see smoke from the previous cities in the distance. On what are you basing your confidence? What an amazing question. It's fine as long as it's two ancient kingdoms, but what happens when it's your life? What happens when you literally have to put something at risk for the Lord? Your job, your health, your children. Doesn't the enemy stand up against you and say, why would you have this kind of confidence? 
After all, you have not been that good to the Lord. In fact, he sent me here as opposition to punish you for all of your wrongdoings. The end of this is going to be that you won't have anything to eat, that your kids will be sick in a foreign country, blah, blah, blah. Am I the only one who hears these lies? I bet Sennacherib is outside your walls in lots of ways, some of which you're willing to admit and others you're not. I bet there's little areas of your life that he stays surrounding constantly, areas that you believe you cannot get victory in because you never have. I wonder if the Lord has a word for us here today. Look at verse 31. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come to take you into a land of your own. He goes on to describe it like the garden of God. Have you ever been convinced that if you just took a break from such serious fanatical Christianity for a while, I mean, if you just relax your standards a little bit, everything would be better. I mean, don't you look around and see that other people are doing it? I mean, at such and such church down the road, man, they all got such nice cars. I bet they don't struggle like this. Look at the big gymnasium. I mean, couldn't you do more for the Lord if you just weren't so serious about all those controversial things? I mean, just trim a little here and a little there for efficiency's sake. I mean, you can still speak in tongues. Do it quietly where no one knows. You don't need to have an altar call in front of everybody. It embarrasses people. Don't talk so much about the blood. Don't talk so much about the, the sacrifice that Jesus made. I mean, let's be honest. We all just want to be good people, don't we? Wouldn't it be better for you? Couldn't you do more for the Lord? I mean, what God really wants is for you to be a successful athlete or businessman. Because if you're a successful athlete or businessman, don't you have a wider audience? If you had more money, then couldn't you do more for the Lord? Have you never heard these lies? I've been hearing them since the moment I was born again. Who promised to bring you into a land of milk and honey? Was it Sennacherib, the one who multiplies sin? Or was it Yeshua, the one who came to swallow sin? The one who came to eat it up, to throw it away, to do away with it? Sin is when you know the good you ought to do, James 4.17 says this, and you don't do it. So when sin is sheriff's outside your walls and he's lying to you, and he can get you to deviate from what God called you to do for one minute, you've sinned. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 138. You can read it from the 7th verse down through the 8th, but I'm just going to quote the 8th to you. It says, The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. God has a purpose for your life, and if you will listen to Him, the Holy Spirit is like a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean that now that you've experienced some gift of the Holy Spirit, I've prophesied, that means I'm good to go, I'm guaranteed? No. It means if the Holy Spirit's presence is in your life and you follow His leading, step when He says step, stop when He says stop, you are guaranteed to get where you're supposed to be going. So the enemy is doing everything that he can to say, if you step here, you'll die. If you step there, you'll die. If you don't back up right now, you will never make it. He lies because that's what he does. He's speaking his native tongue when he does it. Maybe we should look at the last serious threat that he makes. It's in the 33rd verse. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? This is why testimony time is so important. It always cracks me up when I open the floor for testimonies and people just kind of sit on their hands. Really? Because I kind of need salvation every day. For me, it wasn't a two-decade-ago experience. It was a two hours ago he saved me. So it's always hard for me to understand why Christians are quiet at testimony time than I realize we're scared of what people think of us. And when they know what you're being delivered from daily... They might think less of you. I want to tell you the truth. The real sense of God will think more of you. The further you lower yourself, the more Jesus will be exalted in your life. You know in seminary, the pastors are taught to keep a certain distance between them and you? I mean, after all, if you knew me and you walked with me daily and you were around me all of the time, how could you respect my life? 
Well, how did they respect Jesus' life? How did Paul say things like, you know yourself how holy, righteous, and blameless we were when we were among you? How did he do that? I want to tell you that a shepherd should have the smell of sheep on him. Thank you, Abel Torres. We should be with one another, like one another. You should see my weaknesses, Matthew's weaknesses, and God coming through in his strength, and it should give you hope. This movie star image of a pastor is not a pastor. It's not. If that would work, you might as well go ahead and put the little God on your dash of your car. If all you need is a perfect image to look at, go make yourself a beautiful one. I think that the miracle of the cross is that you can look into it and see your nasty, horrible weaknesses and yet His strength working through it. The miracle of the incarnation is not that there was a perfect human being, it's that God would work through a human being and He was perfect. You understand the difference? We need to not look for the perfect ministry. When you walked into it, it would have been broken. <laughs> you need to look for the ministry that you were supposed to perfectly be a part of. Sinasherim stands outside the walls of God's people every day, and he is loud, and he is boisterous, he is obnoxious. I, uh, I couldn't help it. My son is reading Pilgrim's Progress, and I wanted to share something with you out of it. This kind of lie that says, on what are you basing your confidence? Says it came from the Lord when it didn't. It promises that you are going to have to dwell in filth and very severe consequences. He promises that if you will follow Him, there will be peace and a better life. He promises that no God could possibly deliver you from what He's about to do. This sounded to me very much like an allegorical story that a man wrote while he was in prison. You want to guess what he's in prison for? He was preaching illegal meetings. Why were they illegal? Because he had dreams and he had visions from the Lord. He shared them with people. And he dared to deviate from the Anglican, in America they call them Episcopalians, doctrine, and preach only the Word of God. So they put him in jail for it. So he wrote a story, and in his story, there is a young man named Christian who has left the city of destruction and is on his way to the paradise of God. And on the way, he has trial after trial. And I want you to hear some of it. Can you bear with me that I, I read you a novel for a moment? I mean, he was in jail during almost all of the 1660s. And he's writing during a time period where these are only loosely veiled references. For instance, he says he passes two giants. One is called Pope and the other is called Pagan. He said Pagan died a long time ago and Pope is just a paunchy old man who no longer has the strength to reach out and hurt people. That's pretty bold for its death, okay? Uh, but he described the Pope as standing on the grave of the saints. Mm. All right, you ready? So uh, he looks out and he sees a fiend he calls Apollyon. He's a dragon who represents the devil. And he's trying to decide, what do I do? I would like to not have to fight this guy, but this road is narrow. There's no way around him. I think I'll turn and run. Oh, I wasn't given any armor for my backside. He said, I have a sword, I have a shield, I have nothing to cover my backside. I guess I'm going to have to face it. That's where he's at. He says, soon Apollyon came near. He was a hideous monster to behold. He was covered with scales like a fish, of which he was very proud. He had wings like a dragon, feet like a bear, and a mouth like a lion. And out of his belly came fire and smoke. He came up and stared at Christian with the most horrible look and asked, Stranger, where did you come from and where are you going? Christian answered, I am from the city of destruction, and I am on my way to the city called Zion. Apollyon says, Then you are one of my subjects, for all of that country of destruction belongs to me. I am the prince and the god of it. Why have you run away from your king? Were it not that I might get a little more service out of you, I would strike you down right here. Christian says, Indeed, I was born in your dominion. But your service was too hard and your wages were such that no one could live on them for the wages of sin is death. Therefore, when I had opportunity, I, like many others, left your miserable country for a better life. Is this beginning to feel like home a little bit? Apollyon says, You must know that no prince in that dominion gives up his subjects willingly. Neither will I give you up. But since you complain that your service and wages are bad, we can fix that. If you go back and whatever the country can afford, I will pay it and see that you get it. Isn't that just like the devil? If you keep going the direction you're going, I'll destroy you. But since you were complaining about this, I bet we could, bet we could work it out. He's always trying to get you to compromise. 
Hezekiah had just taken his stand for the Lord, instituted a Passover. He commemorated the day death passed over all of Israel, and now there's a king outside his walls promising that they will die in the most horrible ways. Christian says, but I have now given myself to another, the king of all princes, and I cannot go back, Apollyon. You have done according to the proverb. You have gone from bad to worse. You have jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire. But it is common for those who have accepted your king's promise and given themselves to his service after trying that way for a while to give up and slip back and return to my dominion. You'll do the same, and it shall all be well for you. I wish to God that that wasn't true. I wish it was just a fictional novel. But the truth is, most of the people that I started in this race with are no longer running it. They have all found a way to peacefully slip back into the dominion of darkness. They say that they serve the Lord, but in reality, their lives are filled with darkness. This is the pressure that Sennacherib puts on Christians. He's outside the walls. He's always trying to get you to compromise. What will your response be? Christian, my Lord has taken my burden and given me peace. I have given him my faith and sworn my allegiance to him. If I go back now, I should be hanged as a traitor. Apollyon, you did the same to me, but I am willing to forget it. If you will go back and be loyal to me, your former master, I will forgive you. Just like the devil. Sly, subtle, always. He goes on to say, man, what I promised you, I promised in my youth, but I was an adult when I made this decision for the Lord, and I will not back up. I need to read you these last couple lines. It reminded me so much of Sennacherib. Polyon says, but you have already been so unfaithful to your Lord. Where have I been unfaithful, said Christian? You stumbled and fell in the sloth of despond. You turned away to the side of the one called legality. You looked for advice with the worldly wise man. You slept and lost your book on the way. You are ready to turn back at the sight of the chained lions. And when you talk of what you've seen and heard in the way and all your Lord has done for you, it is with a certain inward desire for vain glory. Isn't this just like the devil? Remind you of every area of your failure in life and the few successes that you know that you've had that no one takes you from. He says, yeah, well, you're prideful about those. Am I not speaking anybody's language here? Because this has been a best-selling Christian book for like 400 years. So I imagine that it may speak to your life the way that it has mine. Listen to Christian's response, then we go back to the Word of God. All this is true, <laughs> and much more which you have failed to recount. But the prince I serve is merciful, and he's ready to forgive. Be careful, Apollyon. You do not have jurisdiction on the king's highway. Wow. Then they had a little fight. You are supposed to be at war with the enemy. As long as you're on the king's highway, the enemy has no jurisdiction in your life, but he will speak like he does. Mm -hmm. This man has threatened many things. The multiplier of sin has threatened many things to Hezekiah, the same way the devil threatens you daily. The question is, will your response be as Hezekiah's response was? Because his response makes all the difference in the world. The threats are going to come. The army is going to be bigger. The circumstances are going to be dire. But what will your response be? Look at the 19th chapter. Here comes the 14th verse. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. I want to submit to you that when you find yourself in a difficult place, when the devil is telling you you cannot succeed, and if you are faithful to God, you will surely fail, you need to spread that out before the Lord. There is a hyper-faith movement that says, no, you don't get in that place. There's a hyper-faith movement that says, no, you just don't receive it. Friends, he's already outside the walls. It won't do any good to ignore the fact that he's there. The letter is already in your hand. You can't pretend like it hasn't happened. But what you can do is you can take this horrible, threatening assault on your faith and you can bring it and spread it out before the Lord. Talk to him about every single detail of it. Tell him how it makes you feel. Tell him where your fears and hopes are. But when you leave that room, be resolved to do what God says to do. It's so easy to nod our heads and say yes. But I've been in that room spreading it out before the Lord and felt the brass ceiling. 
I was sure that this time it wouldn't work. I want to encourage you that when you dare to cross the river while it's at flood stage, God will rush in to meet you. When you dare to face the giant, God will meet you. But I also want to tell you that most, and you're no exemption to this rule, most won't do it. They stand and wait for someone else to do it. This is why all Israel is on the sidelines while one little shepherd boy is out fighting their battle. This is why everybody's standing complaining about Moses while he's splitting the Red Sea. The question is, will you fall in the most or will you fall in the narrow way? I'm going to give you a couple tools here to fight with. Some tools to fight back. The first thing is spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. O Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. Do you honestly think God doesn't know this? So why is he saying it? Maybe he needed to hear it. There are times you need to stop and say, wait a minute. The God of the universe is my God. He controls everything. He owns everything. He is the prince above all. It's not that he doesn't know it. It's that you needed to be reminded of it. You know, friends, you can have a problem that is only this big, but if you get it close enough to your eyesight, it will block out all of your holy vision towards the king. One way that you know you're far from God's presence is when your problems seem bigger than him. Because the closer your eyes get trained to him, the smaller your problems look in the distance. A young preacher named Preston Coles taught me he said, you need to quit telling God how big your problems are and start declaring to your problems how big your God is. Amen. It's not magic. It's not hocus pocus. It has to do with a frame of reference that puts you in a position to trust God. And trusting Him is what pleases Him. Faith in Him is what pleases Him. And this paves the way for Him to move. It really makes me nauseous when churches talk about money all of the time. But one reason churches talk about money a lot, even good churches, is because Christians are well adapted at saying that they trust Him in every area, but in the most basic area of financial responsibility to the kingdom of God, they fail week after week after week after week, and then want to walk in victory. I'm telling you, start with the smallest area of your life. Start with whatever you know that God has given you. Put yourself in a position to show trust in Him and then build on that. Build on that and watch it grow and grow and grow. People don't step out of cars one day and pray for somebody to get raised from the dead in a traffic accident and they've never prayed for anybody with a cold before. I promise. We're always convinced that in the big things where it really counts, I'll come through. And yet in the little things every day, we're not doing it. The Word of God teaches us that when you've been faithful with a small thing, with a few things, He adds more to it. I started this ministry with just Jennifer. Prove faithful in your own household that ministry will grow right out of that. Don't stand and blame everybody around you for all that's not being done. Start with what you have been given and God will grow it. It will require trust. And I promise you, if it's of God, there'll be serious opposition. Opposition that is so overwhelming that if you're honest, you want to quit many times. I was laughing with Kelsey the other day. He was talking about a struggle that is every Wednesday just to go to church, right? Truth is, when I was starting this church, if it had not been in my home, I might not have made some of the Wednesday services. <laughs> Nobody is saying that this is not a fight. In fact, I'm telling you it's a life and death fight. Learn to spread your problem out before the Lord. Begin to speak words of faith. Remind yourself who God is. Now watch this. You have made the heavens and the earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. He began to back off and get a right perspective. Wait a minute. You're the king over everything. I belong to you. You're fulfilling your purpose in my life, and this guy's coming against it. It's really you he's opposing. You know who else you heard do that? David, while he's running towards the giant, tells the giant he defied the armies of the living God. David didn't see that battle as his own defeat. He saw himself as a participant, but the battle was between God and the giant. This is what Deuteronomy was teaching. 
He actually goes so far in Deuteronomy 20 to say, look, if you're scared, go home. Just go home, okay? If you've got a new house, a new vineyard, a new wife, whatever it is, and you're scared, go home and enjoy those things. We don't really need you. But if you're not scared, know that the battle belongs to the Lord. See, we need to begin to position ourselves within a sheriff in a different way. Instead of seeing ourselves alone with this fearful intimidator, we need to step back and realize, no, we're a third party in this. The intimidator's problem is with God, and God has a problem with him. And our job is simply to do what God has said. As a young husband, the, the, the first thing that happened, I mean, very first thing that happened, I began to move in faith on a job and had put a job in jeopardy. Everybody had said our marriage was going to not make it anyway. I mean, we we're just 18. Can you blame her? Now it's our first Christmas together. And because a man got spirit-filled on his job and his whole life began to change, his parents got nervous and thought this Christianity was a little too fanatical and decided to move me out of the business. So I'm sitting at home, my first Christmas married, thinking I've done a horrible job of providing for my family. Right? No savings, no blah, blah, blah. It's always this way. It will always be that way. I'm thinking that I am going to fail. We're going to have to go back and tell our parents, you know, we couldn't make it. Tell all of our friends they were right. I'm beginning to have all of these visions because sin sheriff is outside my walls. The Lord not only sustained us, he prospered us during that time. It was my favorite Christmas. I got a hammer that I still have today. Jennifer got a sewing machine that she still has to this day. But most importantly, we survived our first married trial and we began to realize that our God was not hindered by our circumstances. January and a new year came and so did a new job and lots more people got spirit filled on that job. And it's never stopped. This is the cycle of believers. Spread your problems out before the Lord. Begin to tell the Lord, who he is, not because he doesn't know, but because you need reminding. Start to recognize this fight belongs to the Lord and not to you. Look at verse 17. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to these nations in their lands. One of the worst things that Christians do is you've got diabetes, right? It's not, it's not a joke. You've had the test, you have diabetes. They walk around and say, I don't have diabetes, I'm not receiving that. Well, they eat jelly donuts, right? Say, in faith, I don't have diabetes. You're an idiot. I mean, let's just say it. That is as stupid as could possibly be. It'd be much better to say, this report is true. But Lord, you're able to do something about it. I have diabetes, but you can heal me. You don't ever see an example of somebody walking up to Jesus and go, you know, they say I have leprosy. I have no nose, no eyes, no, no ears. They say I have leprosy, but I don't really have leprosy, Lord. I'm not receiving it. You don't see that anywhere in the Word. This is a ridiculous TV invention for people in a strange sort of hocus-pocus kind of faith. Real faith acknowledges that there is a problem, but reasons God is able to do something about it. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and tell him. Lord, I don't know how I'm going to pay this bill. <laughs> it's not there. But I know you're able to do something about it. And whether you do or don't do something about it, I'm going to love you, serve you, and believe that you are directing the events of my life. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood before another wicked king. He threw them into a fire, but before so, he threatened them. He made it hotter. He told them what he was going to do. And they said, know this, O king. Our God is able to deliver us from the fire. But if not, we still will not serve you. This needs to be the attitude of all Christians in trouble. We can't keep our loved ones from dying. I don't care how holy you are, man's mortality rate is 100%. You can pray and believe that God is able to do something about it and He may raise them from the dead or sustain their life or cause them to live longer. He may do amazing things, but if not, you still cannot be controlled by fear and intimidation. They cannot coexist with faith. It is not possible to be dominated by fear and motivated by faith at the same time. Your trust in your king must overcome your fear of circumstance and consequence and retaliation. 
It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from His hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that You alone are Lord, our God. O Lord, our God. What was his motivation for deliverance? Was it simply so that he would survive another day? Was it simply so that he wouldn't have to suffer? We hear lots of prayer about not having to suffer. That's nowhere in his frame of reference. He says, if you deliver us, everyone will know that you are Lord and you are God. Because it could never have happened simply by our own merits. I want to ask you, are you in any situations that there is no way out of by your own merit? that there is not a possible hope that you could have to sustain or to make it on your own. If you are, this is a great chance for a testimony of God. Because if it really is, as you say, there is no hope, no way out unless God save you, then when He does, everybody ought to know that God is a Savior. Now, if that situation doesn't apply to your life, if it has never applied to your life, if you can't imagine it applying to your life, you may be living such a safe life that you don't know what faith is. I dare you to risk something for the Lord. Because He didn't call you simply to protect your life. He called you to give it away. The one who loses his life finds it. The one who saves his life loses it. So aren't I supposed to be secure? Your security is supposed to come from your relationship with the Lord, not the abundance of your possessions, not the insulation of your life from everything that's bad. How many churches move out of an area of town because the area of town is bad? That's why a church should be in that area of town. But we don't. We buy more security systems, bigger burglar bars. Something's wrong, saints. Christianity flourishes where it's under the greatest attack because this is a chance for God to be magnified. God is no different in India. He's no different in Mexico. He's no different in Brazil. He's no different in the other countries of the world. What's different are the people. Where they have limited resources, they've learned to trust their God. Where they're outnumbered, they've learned to trust their God. If the Bible says it's hard for a rich man to be saved and the poor are rich in faith, why is it our ambition from the time we're little to be rich? I want to encourage you to live a life that is on the edge. Other people will think it is crazy, but you will find out about the delivering power of your God. As long as you hold back, you save something for the trip home, you protect, you insulate, you focus on security, all you ever find out is how good you are at saving yourself. God had a response. His response to Sennacherib's problem was to send Isaiah with a word. Praise God that no matter how strong you are, no matter how steadfast you have been, there are times when you simply need a confirmation. You need somebody to show up with a word that resonates in your soul. This is why we have these meetings a couple times a week. Our hope is that in your daily interaction with the Lord, you're striving to hear His voice, and then at some point in one of our meetings, someone will prophesy, someone will pray, or there might even be a preacher who shares something that resonates with your spirit, and now you can be resolute in your direction. That is our hope. It's not to entertain you. It's not to build bigger buildings. It's not to have more advanced marketing programs. I've never cared about any of those things. But developing a church where the people will stand shoulder to shoulder against the enemy, developing a church where people care enough to let you see their faith by their deeds, developing a church that will help you move, that's something the world doesn't get to see every day. We want to place deed over creed. We want to stand with each other in our battles. Have you ever been around somebody that all they could do was talk about the battle they're in, the battle they're in, the battle they're in, and you're familiar with it, you know it, when you see him coming, you're like, oh, I know the battle is in before he even gets here, and he's never asked you about the battle you're in? Selfishness will cut you off from God and man. 
Friends, we need to learn to help each other bear burdens. We need to learn to stand with one another. Sometimes the most powerful thing you can do is put your hand on somebody's shoulder, look them in the eyes sincerely full of faith, and say, it's okay, God's going to deliver you. You have no idea that they may be hanging on for that. So Isaiah shows up. He's got this word. Look at verse 25 of chapter 19. Have you not heard long ago I ordained it? In days of old I planned it, now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Their people drained of power and are dismayed and put to shame. They are like plants in the field, like tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. But I know where you stay. And when you come in, and when you go out, and how you rage against me. Send a share of everything that you've done, I've allowed you to do. But you have forgotten something, you multiplier of sin. I know where you live. Does it surprise you that Sennacherib was killed in a temple to his God by his own sons? God sent a word to Hezekiah and said, it's true. The things that this guy has done, he did because I allowed. But I'm not going to allow him to hurt you. I know where he lives. And I will cut him down in a temple to his own God. There was another encouragement. An encouragement that is worth getting here. Look at the 30th verse. Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. Friends, it is time that God, what He has invested in you, what has taken root in your life, begins to bear fruit above. It may look like Jerusalem is cut down at the very knees. It may look like they have no military strength. They have no economic power. They have no power to resist this foreign army. But what God put in them that is taking root would again bear fruit above. God is promising something. It may look desolate now. It may look like just dirt, but I'm telling you something is going to break the surface and you will see life again. Sometimes in our lives we have to get to a place that is just stripped bare. But whatever is really taking root in your heart will begin to bear fruit above. I was with a woman who felt like her marriage her second marriage at the time was the end of her life. I'm a failure again. It'll never work. No matter what I do, these things keep falling apart. But there had been a hope in her since she was a little girl that one day she would get to serve God with a godly husband. I lived to see that happen and begin to bear fruit above. In fact, I'm that fruit. My mother's desire for a godly marriage caused her and Gary Kenshin to get in church together. What had taken root in her heart during the most desolate times in her life began to bear fruit above the surface. It just took a little while. How do you know if you trust something? Well, are you willing to wait on it? Are you willing to say that you can see it even when it's just kind of a vapor? Are you willing to maintain a dream that came from God despite all the circumstances? Aren't, this, aren't these the stories that the Bible is about? 17-year-old boy that's in prison but promised he'll be king of the world? A woman who's barren but promised she'll give birth to nations? A man who can't have children but is going to be the exalted father? The littlest nation on the planet that will be the head of all nations? Isn't this what the Bible is about? What is your life about? What dream drives you? What calling sustains you? What in your life can you look at the intimidator and laugh and say, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me? You can beat me into a greasy little spot on the ground, but what has taken root in here will bear fruit above the ground. Isaiah also said, when faithfulness springs up from the earth, righteousness looks down. All you need to do is trust the Lord and his righteousness is looking upon you. Let's read the end of this matter. When you're thinking about the intimidator and his lies, you need to know God knows where he lives. God knows where he lives. It's one thing to go stand out somebody else's house and shout horrible things and try to intimidate them. It's another when your daddy shows up in their bedroom and puts them in their place. Yeah. Anybody in here have a bigger brother or sister? I suffered at the hand of my sister many times. <laughs> 
but there was a particular day when I realized she was with me in full strength and power. And I was a little boy being dunked in a swimming pool. And my sister hit this little boy so hard that all of his face stuck to his braces. I walked very tall at that pool for a long time. <laughs> my daddy God knows where the enemy stays. He knows where he lays down at night. And none of the insults that are falling upon me that are really meant for him are going unnoticed. If you really believe something like that, I challenge you to live like it. Listen to this. The account from 2 Kings 19 will be in the 32nd verse. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. I like how he quits calling him by name. <laughs> he just starts referring to his title. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and the sake of David, my servant. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day while he was worshipping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons, Adrimelech and Shazar, cut him down with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. What a difference a day can make. They went to bed one night, and their world had come apart. They woke up the next day, and their world was restored. So today is bleak. If the sun rises tomorrow, it is a testimony that the God who conquered the grave and pierced the darkness with the light of his resurrection can change your day that very day. Amen. Christians, when we walk around scared of everything, when we're so intimidated we dare not speak out, when the Muslims are louder about their love for God than the Christians are about theirs, this is not how the body of Christ was meant to be. I want to encourage you to live boldly, loudly. Make no apologies for your faith. Do not hedge your bets with God. Don't think to yourself, well, if he doesn't come through in this area, maybe it'll be this area. Put it all in. And you'll see a great deliverance. As long as you play it safe, what you're really doing is you're leaning on God and something else. It can't be. It can't be. God will not share His glory with you. He will not share His glory with another. He wants all of you. And the best way to find that out is to put you in an impossible situation and see if you trust Him for the supernatural solution. The other things that I wanted to tell you had to do with the way culture any road on me. But I think we'll do that in a different message, right? Because this one was an hour and that was the first half. <laughs> Are y'all hungry? You hungry for Jesus? Yes. We need to be very careful that we don't get used to assembly, saying all of the right things and going out and living all the same ways. If something in this message began to mark your heart, if it began to spur you, do something different tomorrow or else you're in danger of what James said. Hearing all of the right things and doing none of them and deceiving yourself. It is not enough that you believed and were baptized. It is not enough that you are spirit-filled and that you prophesied. Anything short of doing what God tells you to do this moment is sin. And we cannot abide by any sin. Amen? Stand to your feet. Let's pray. Mighty God, you appeared that you might do away with sin. Lord, I want to confess that one of the problems that leads me into sin is my fear and my concern about what if. Lord, we are abandoning caution. We're leaving our inhibitions behind. We're telling you no matter how reckless it looks, we're willing to put something at risk that we would trust you. Lord, we're not careless 
We're not gambling with you. We've weighed it. We've looked at it. And we believe that you are trustworthy in all things, so it's an investment. We're investing like the house built on the rock. We're believing that your word is right 100% of the time, and that if we can dare to put it into practice, it will be okay in the end. We love you, Jesus, as we face Apollyon on the road. Lord, teach us to do it head on with the weaponry that you've given us. Mighty God, teach us not to make compromises, not to make special backroom treaties, but to be at war with those you are at war with, that we might be saved in your great deliverance. We love you, Jesus. We're asking that you would anoint us as joyful warriors. Lord God, that like King David, we would be able to dance in your presence and still go out to battle. Lord God, pour out your oil of joy upon these people, that with smiles on their faces, they might become the most dangerous thing the enemy has ever seen. We love you, Lord God, and we ask your anointing upon this group for evangelism, anointing upon this group for multiplication in the kingdom, anointing upon this group to do the work that you have anointed them to do, that you have called them to do. In the name of Jesus, we commit them into your hands. Amen. Amen.